if you ever felt like, you know, just the, the waters of the world, you know, if you're just trying to get your head above the, the flesh and, the, and the, you know, the worldly events that go on just to get a gasp of spiritual air. I don't know if you ever felt like that. Um, you know, this has been one of those kind of weeks for me where it just, you know, nothing major, but just it's just one thing after another, after another, after another. And um, Brother Tim asked me a couple, of day, a couple of days ago if I'd preach, and it, that, the week had already started out bad, and I just thought, oh, I will, you know, but uh, I'm, I'm really gasping for air. But then the more I thought about it, and today was no different, um, the more I thought about it, if you ever need a, a place, uh, if you ever need some higher ground to step up out of those drowning waters, this is it. Uh, and, you know, I, I think about something Uncle Ball told me um, several months ago, maybe a year ago, and he was telling me about when he was a boy. Um, he said the town of Gordo, uh, which they grew up kind of on the outskirts of it, was uh, just always, I mean, it was just lots of people, nothing like it is now. He said there were just people everywhere. He said, you know, on Saturdays and Sundays, you know, the streets were full, people walking up and down the streets of Gordo. And he said, but uh, the churches were, you know, somewhat empty. There just was not a lot of uh, church attendance, even though the town was just hustling and bustling with uh, people and a lot of excitement and events. And that's, that's typically how it goes. And then he told me, um, he said, and then uh, the war hit, and he said all of these young men from this town were being shipped off to war. And it was a very difficult time for the town. And he said the streets were not near as full, but the churches were packed. And the reason that is, is because those folks needed some higher ground to step up to. And sometimes in our prosperity and in our blessings, um, we, we don't look for that high ground. Uh, but the Lord has a way sometimes of making us see it, making us appreciate it, appreciate it, making us need it. So I need to be here tonight, rain or shine. I needed to be here to have some higher ground to step to. And I hope that you did too. And I hope that um, if the Lord will bless me, I can give you just a few thoughts that are somewhat beneficial. Uh, a weeknight service, a Wednesday night service, I've always had a little different um, I guess just feeling, uh, sometimes I feel more, you know, it's a great time to do some teaching, and, and maybe that's more what this sermon is about uh, than just um, getting up here and, and necessarily preaching, but who knows uh, what the Lord will do with it. But I want to start in 2 Timothy, the second chapter, and this is a verse probably you're all very familiar with, but it's something I've that'll kind of lay the groundwork for something that's been on my mind this week. In 2 Timothy 2.15, uh, one of the most powerful verses that uh, I appreciated as I came over to the Primitive Baptist was this verse. I don't know that I, it, I had, I'm sure I'd read it before, but it never really stood out to me. But this verse uh, says, To study, to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And, you know, the gist of that verse to me is uh, for a child of God, you know, you think about the Word of God. It is not just some average, ordinary book. You know, this is a book that was um, written by 40-something different authors of all different walks of life and economic statuses. And um, they, were, they spanned over thousands of years. And all of those authors got inspired to write something. And he put it, uh, it was compiled into a book. And the Bible tells us that he preserved those words, meaning that they're going to be handed down from generation to generation. And if the Lord did all those things in a very magnificent way, he put those things in, in here because 
the things that, that are in here, we need to know. And now, having said that, there are going to be things that I'm certain that I will live the rest of my life and die, and, and I will never fully understand everything that's in this Bible. Uh, I, you know, my mind is just not that way. The Lord uh, may not reveal those things to me. There's always going to be some level of mystery, but everything in here is written for our benefit. And the Bible tells us that it's written for our instruction and for our correction and for, uh, you know, to, to, for us to learn, to be taught and to know what the Lord expects. It's an important book. And the Bible says here that if we're to study it and to rightly divide it. That means to me that I need to do more with this book than just sit down and casually read it, say a little prayer and go on about my day. Right. It's to be studied. And it says it needs to be rightly divided and I thought a lot about the word rightly divided and I remember a preacher saying one time that you can uh, multiply something and you're going to be adding to it you can add something you're adding to it you subtract something and you're taking something away from it but when you divide something you're just breaking it down into its components right you're just uh, simplifying it I guess you could say if you had a uh, you know, if you had a huge, uh, my, our boys like to do Legos. If you had a huge Lego rocket right here and you multiplied it, you've got more Legos or added or take away. But when you divide that, you're just simply taking it apart into its individual pieces and looking at them on a smaller scale, but you're not changing it or adding or taking away from it. And so the Bible says we need to have some skill at being able to rightly divide, meaning take the Bible and break it down. I've said before, one of the most dangerous things you can do when you're um, developing a belief system is just to take a handful of verses and build your belief off that, which that's what happens a lot of times. But when you can rightly divide something, I want you to you know, take, take from you know, me for example. I can tell you uh, a little bit about a car, right? I can tell you about, you know, you, the way you put the key in, you crank it, and you, this pedal does that, that pedal does that, this does I can tell you a little bit about the car, but I can't tell you like, about the car like Brother Harold or Brother Marlin probably could. And because they have gotten in there and broken that thing down before and divided it up into each individual parts, and they understand it way more than I do because they've divided it up before. Uh, I can tell you a little bit, uh, about uh, the human body. But I can't tell you near as much about the human body as a surgeon could because a surgeon has dove into bodies before and taken things and put this here and divided and looked and gone down onto a deeper level, right? And so rightly dividing something means we go into it and we start breaking it down into its parts. And again, if we're going to take a verse like John 3.16, it is very detrimental to take a verse like John 3.16 and just let your whole belief system be built on John 3.16. You need, a, you need a, a working knowledge of the other areas of the Bible, and that just comes through uh, reading, through study, through taking the time to cross-reference things. And Brother Tim, he did a whole Wednesday night thing several times about how to do those things. So rightly dividing the word of truth is critical, and it is a very important skill that we have now. Tonight, what I want to try to rightly divide for us is a thought that you see uh, oftentimes used to, um, I guess, to, uh, um, I hate to use the word argue, I guess, but to, uh, you know, give a, uh, an antagonistic view or to try to disprove, maybe that's a better way to say it, 
uh, what we believe as primitive Baptists in uh, salvation by grace and that God's sovereign uh, choice of a family and him sending his son to die um, and that death on the cross saved them all from their sins. You know, and somebody might come to you and use some of these verses and say to you something like the Bible says that God is no respecter of persons. Now, when somebody says, you're going to tell me that God is a God of choice and that you're telling me that God chose his family, and, but the Bible says that God is no respecter of persons. And so when we go through and rightly divide that, the Bible does say that. The Bible says that God is no respecter of persons. It does say that, but we need to understand when you look at that, I found the word respect many times in the Bible and there were, at least that I counted, 11 different Hebrew or Greek words that were translated into respect. And they don't always mean the same thing. Sometimes they might can mean sim something similar, but there were 11 different words that translated into respect. Here are some of the definitions. Uh, it means to gaze at, to regard, to discriminate, to distinguish, to lift up, to carry, to turn towards or away from, to acknowledge, to treat as profane, to see, or to be partial to. So when we are looking at a verse like that says that God is no respecter of persons, the first thing we've got to figure out is what definition applies to that, right? But more importantly than that, I think it's important that we put into context what is being said there. I knew a guy one time, Brother Marlon and Sister Rhonda knew him too. And any time that I talked with this man and I had something that might seem to go against what he was saying, every single time he would say, well, you got to put it in the right context. You got to put it in the right context. What was real funny, though, is he was never able to put it in the right context for me. He, he said, you know, that's the wrong context, wrong context. Well, what is the right context? And he never could tell me. So he just kind of used it as an excuse, like, oh, you just got the wrong context. But the principle of what he was saying was correct. We need to put it in the right context, correct? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, yet over in, I believe it's James, the Bible says that uh, any man that loves, the, that we're not to love the world and any man that loves the world uh, is an enemy of God. All right, well, God so loved the world, but we're not to love the world. There's some reconciliation that needs to be taking place. How do you do that? Well, you rightly divide the word of truth, right? So when the Bible says that God is no respecter of persons, it's important that we put this in the right context. So I'm going to give you three, three different examples here. First that I want to get you is in Romans, the second chapter. This is where most people would go to... Uh, disprove what we believe and that God is sovereign in his choice of a family. And in verse, uh, Romans 2, verse 11, it says, For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without law, without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are just before God. For not the hearers of the word are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else accusing one another. Now, the main thing I want out of that is that it says that there is no respect of persons with God. But what else is it talking about? 
It says there's no respect of persons with God. You could say it like this. There's no discrimination with God. There's no distinguishing with God. Um, There's no impartiality with God. Um, But it goes on and says this. What is he talking about? He's talking about sin. Right. Because what does he say here? He says, listen, we're talking about the law. We're talking about many as have sinned without the law. They're going to perish. It says as many that have sinned in the law, they're going to be judged. And then he goes on and says it's not so much. uh, He goes on and talks about the Gentiles. He says the Gentiles, they didn't even have the law, but yet I will not show them partiality. I'm not going to show them favor. I'm not going to distinguish them from somebody else because even though they don't have the law, they do by nature the things contained in the law because the law is written in their hearts. There's a lot of preaching in that, but, but for what I want, I just am trying to make the point, the context that he's saying here is Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. Either whether you are Jew or whether you are Gentile, your sin is viewed the same in the eyes of God. He is not a respecter of persons, meaning that, oh, look at that Gentile committing adultery. Mm, shame, shame, shame on you. Well, there's a Jew committing adultery, but since he's a Jew, it's not that big a deal. You see what he's saying? There's no respect of persons with God based on your, the, uh, uh, there's no, sorry, there is no respect of persons with God when it is considering the sin that you have just because of your nationality. I'm sorry, I, I struggled saying that, but it's been one of those weeks. So a Jew's sin, a Gentile sin, a black person's sin, a white person's sin, they're all sin to God. He does not give favor and a pass to one person simply because there is people. If he, if he was going to do that, don't you think he would have give, given Adam one? Don't you think he would have given Adam a pass? Because Adam's sin had some tremendous consequences, right? Well, man, I brought him from the dust of the ground. I think I'm just, no. When it comes to sin... And concerning sin, the Jew and the Gentile sin is both detestable before God. So in that sense, God is not a respecter of persons concerning sin. Now, what about Acts the 10th chapter? Another very familiar passage. In Acts the 10th chapter, and this is one of my, uh, this is probably one of my all-time favorite accounts in the Bible. And especially I love the way Peter ends it here and what he says this is the account of Cornelius and Peter and if you remember in the Bible or the times of the Bible the Old Testament if you talk to a Jewish person and you mentioned uh, a dog they knew that you would be talking about a Gentile okay the racial division that we have um, in America between um, the you know the African Americans and the whites is nothing compared to the division they had between Jew and Gentile. The Jews looked at the Gentiles as filthy and rotten. As a matter of fact, it was actually against the law for a Jew to eat or associate with a Gentile. That's that's how bad it was. And so Peter says, uh, when when the Lord finally uh, opens Peter's eyes and says, hey, listen, I've got a people among the Gentiles just like I've got among the Jews. And he said, I want you to go to Cornelius, who is a Gentile, and I want you to preach to him. I want you to go into his house and I want you to uh, to talk with him. And Peter's like, I'm not doing it. 
I'm not going to go in there. It's unlawful for me to eat with them. I'm not going to go into their house. I'm not going to talk to them. I'm not going to do any of those things. And God continues to make the point. I've been there with Cornelius. I've touched him. He is an object of my grace. He's been born again by the Spirit of God. He is just as much one of my children as you are. And don't dare call him common or unclean because I have washed him white as snow in the same way that I've washed you, Peter. And so at the end of that, Peter says this. It says, then Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Now, what is he talking about? Okay, Romans, the second chapter, we see when it concerning sin, that God is not a respecter of persons. Right. Remember, he does that. He does, meaning that he doesn't differentiate between the Gentile sin or the Jew sin. They're both detestable to him. What does it mean here? Is there some differentiation or distinction or discrimination between a Jew and a Gentile? For a long time, the Jews believed, yes, there was. But Peter's saying here, I realize now that the nationality of a man is not what distinguishes God's favor with him. Meaning that here's a Gentile, here's a Jew, here's a black, here's a white, here's an Asian, here's an Indian. None of those things are a factor when it comes to the Lord looking on somebody and setting his affection on them. So see, God is no respecter of persons concerning sin. God is no respecter of persons concerning a person's nationality, right? Which we know that because the Bible says that his family is made up of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation, right? We, we will not go to heaven when you close your eyes and you visualize what heaven looks like. You are not going to go into heaven and look and it's be all people that look just like us tonight. It's going to be people of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. And I heard Josh Coker say a while back, and I thought it was excellent. He said, you know, there have been languages that um, have come and gone way before the times of the gospel." Well, the Bible says of every tongue, that is every language. So there are languages which we don't even know exist or because they don't exist anymore of, of communities of people where they have died out. But out of that group, there will be some of those people in heaven or else the Bible is a lie because it's out of every kindred tongue, people and nation. This is way before the times of the gospel. So God is not a respecter of persons concerning sin. God is not a respecter of persons concerning nationality. Go to James, the second chapter, for just a second. Let me read a couple verses here in verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. That means, um, you know, I, one time I saw, and y'all may all do this, I don't know. One time we went to Chick-fil-A, and I looked across the table, and there's one of my kids with an ice cream cone and a french fry. And they're like dipping the ice cream in the French fry. And I'm like, that, those two don't go together. They do to them, but they didn't to me. But there's two things that shouldn't go together, right? And here he's saying, we don't need to possess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and also possess a respect of persons. He says, have not, don't possess the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect of persons. So don't have respect of persons and the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ because those two don't go together, right? He's, this is instruction to not be a respecter of persons. It says, For if there come unto you assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing. Now, that would mean something different today. Now, that, in that time, it meant shining or bright clothing, magnificent clothing. 
And it says, if somebody come to you in gay clothing and say unto him, sit thou here in a good place and say to the poor, stand thou there or sit under my footstool, are ye not then, are ye not then partial or having respect in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? So the Lord is clear here that the Lord is not a respecter of persons based on your economic status, right? The Lord looks at the rich man. The Lord looks at the poor man. How much money you've got in your bank account, what you're wearing, uh, how many followers you've got on Facebook, uh, what your title is at work. None of those things are a factor when the Lord chooses to set his object of grace on somebody. Are you with me? So the question is this. There's lots of other verses that talk about respect to persons, but this I wanted to use those three to make this point. Is God, does God have respect of persons? Does God gaze upon uh, does God distinguish? Does God favor? Is God a respecter of persons? Well, in one sense, no. God is not a respecter of persons concerning your economic status, concerning uh, your, the sin in your life, or concerning your nationality or your skin color. But now, if you said, ask me, is God a respecter of persons? I would also have to say yes. That God is a respecter of persons because when it comes to the covenant of grace... We will see that God is discriminatory. God is distinguishing. God does set his affection on one and not the other. Let's look at a few verses here in Genesis, the fourth chapter. And again, all of this is hopefully to kind of equip your mind. If somebody comes along and says, well, the Bible says, God, I don't you what you primitive Baptists believe is a bunch of hogwash because the Bible says God is no respecter of persons. Well, I agree with you on those particular contexts. Sin, nationality, economic status. But in Genesis, the fourth chapter, it says, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord, listen, had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering... He had not respect. Now, let's look at it this way. Well, Romans 2.11 says that God is no respecter of persons. But Genesis 4 said God had respect to this one and didn't have respect to that one. So what is it? That's where rightly dividing comes into play. That's where you've got to dig a little deeper and figure out how does all this harmonize? Because if there is any contradiction, the contradiction is in our understanding. It's in our mind. It is not in the Bible. So it does say he's not a respecter of persons. And I've tried to prove to you tonight that that is concerning things like nationality, economic status, or just the sin that we have in our life. But clearly here, there is a respect or a discrimination, uh, a distinction that the Lord has between Abel and Cain, and it's not just their offering. You see, the Bible says that the Lord had respect unto Abel and to Abel's offering. And he did not have respect to Cain and to Cain's offering. See, it wasn't just his offering. I heard somebody say not a while back, he said, I'll tell you what, Cain really got a bad deal. And boy, I almost shuddered a little bit. I almost shuddered a little bit when I heard that and I thought, who are we to tell the Lord that he gave somebody a raw deal? Is he not the Lord's to do with what he wants? 
So the Lord had respect here. Let me give you another couple uh, examples here. In Exodus, the second chapter, I'm going to read a few verses out of Exodus. In Exodus, the second chapter, in the 25th verse, this is a time when Israel was in captivity to Egypt. And it says in verse 23, And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of their bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of their bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham. Don't forget that. His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and what? God had respect unto them. The question is, is God a respecter of persons? No, when it comes to sin, economic status, and nationality. The answer is yes, when it comes to his covenant. And that says it clearly there. Let's look a little further at Exodus, the 11th chapter. And, and I can only tell you, as far as I studied this out, there were 10 plagues that came upon Egypt, right? 10 plagues that came upon Egypt. I know at least seven of the 10 only affected the Egyptians. I know at least seven of the ten <clears throat> only affected them. God is not unrighteous if the first three did or the other three did. But I kind of, I kind of would speculate maybe if seven out of the ten only affected the Egyptians, maybe ten out of ten only affected them. I don't know. You know, when the Nile turned to blood, I'm sure that uh, the Hebrews were somewhat dependent on the Nile for water just like everybody else was. But if God can differentiate, you know, the, this person's uh, firstborn dying and not this one, or this person's, you know, uh, you know, being attacked by bulls and this person's not, I'm sure he can figure the water issue out, right? But seven out of ten did not affect the Hebrews. Now, and it says this about the tenth plague, and this is the death of the firstborn. <clears throat> and it says in verse 5 of chapter 11, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of the beast. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know that the, how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. The definition of difference there coincides perfectly with some of the definitions of respect. That's, read it this way. That you'll know that the Lord doth respect, have respect towards the Israelites, but not the Egyptians. Now, every single one of those Egyptians were not guilty of the hardships that were placed on Israel. They were probably just citizens in the land of Egypt, right? But the Lord said, I'm showing you here that there is a difference between these people and these people. That is having respect to one and not the other. Just like here's Abel, here's Cain, here's Israel, here's Egypt. There was a difference there, a distinguishing between the two because God had respect to them. There's no other way we can have that other than to say when it comes to God's covenant of grace. It is a specific, discriminatory, distinguishing covenant that he set on a specific people and had respect unto them. I encourage you. I think it is the 136th Psalm. I could be totally wrong on that. No, it is. Go read the 136th Psalm one day. And I want you to have two, two 
schools of thought in your mind. One, I want you to have the idea that God is no respecter of persons. That every single person that has ever existed, uh, he looks on them with equal favor and love. And then I want you to look through it, read through Psalms 136 with the idea that God's uh, covenant was a specific distinguishing covenant between these people and these people. Because as you read through there, this is a psalm that highlights the mercies of God. And it says, to him that smote Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endureth forever. I want you to think about that for a second. This tells us that the act of the Lord going into Egypt and smiting the firstborn of all the Egyptians was not cruel, was not unfair, was not harsh. It says it was an act of mercy. Why? Because there's a covenant people there that he had respect to. It goes on and it talks about his deliverance. It says he overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea for his mercy endureth forever. Not his cruelty, not his, not, his, uh, not his unfairness, but he closed up the Red Sea on Pharaoh and the Bible says that was an act of mercy because he has respect to a covenant people. Now, let me finish up with this. In Romans the ninth chapter, it'd be hard to talk about this without going to Romans the ninth chapter. In verse 11, it says, for the children, talking about Jacob and Esau, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And I've said this before. The context of hate there is not to love less. Because he's quoting from Malachi. And when he quotes it from Malachi, the definition of that Hebrew word only has one possible meaning, and that's to utterly hate. But let's just say, let's just say that it does mean love less. Well, is it not having respect unto this one to love him more than this one? Either way you want to slice that, God is a, a God that has a respect unto those that are uh, uh, children of his covenant. And I'm thankful for that. Listen, we make distinctions and show partiality all the time. All the time. Yet when God does it, we criticize him for it. Right? We said that before. Uh, the best example I've ever heard used was that in marriage. When I, when I uh, you know, all the, all the women out there that would possibly even give me half a chance. You know, Tiffany was the one that just did it for me. She was the one that I looked at and I had respect unto her. I gazed at her. She was different than all the other girls. I, I, and, and even to this day, I'll do things for my wife and Tiffany that I won't do for y'all. I'll do things for my children that I wouldn't do for yours. Doesn't mean I don't love them, understand. But I have respect unto them. You, you will do things for your children that you won't do for mine. My children will not be in your will. They'll be in your children, be in your will, my children being, I will give that to my children, but I won't give it to yours, right? I don't mean that ugly. I'm just saying we make a distinction. We choose Alabama over Auburn or vice versa. If 
Well, Julie, sorry. Auburn over Alabama, right? We make distinctions all the time. We show respect and sovereign choices of ours all the time. And everybody's good with it. But when God does it, we want to criticize Him. But when you read through the Bible, what's easy to see is that your wealth or your skin color or the clothes that you wear or your status, those are not the things that draw the gaze of the Lord. Those are not the things that make you highly favored with the Lord. As a matter of fact, if the Lord walked in here on a jam-packed Sunday morning, I rather suspect it would be the meekest, lowest, poorest person that he would want to go spend the most time with. All of those things, look, when it comes to the wrath and judgment of God, if those have not those that are not uh, uh, objects of his covenant grace and his wrath is poured out on them, he's going to have his wrath poured out on the rich and poor alike, right. on the black and the white alike, because the Lord is no respecter of persons concerning sin. But concerning the covenant of grace, he is. Now, I don't know what, I always like to give you a take home. Like here, here's just the nutshell of it. I don't know that I can necessarily give you just the nutshell that I'm looking for tonight. But you need to understand that when people come to you and give you a verse that contradicts what you believe, rightly divide the word of God and look at it and see, I agree with you, brother. That God is no respecter of persons concerning these things. But let me show you the Israelites. Let me show you the Hebrews. Let me show you Abel. And I can clearly show you that God's covenant people have a respect from Him, a partiality to Him, a discriminatory gaze that others do not have. Now listen, that's the most hated doctrine in the whole world. It is. I'm always comforted to know the ones that the Lord did not set his gaze on, they wouldn't want it if you offered it to them. Because the only thing that makes us want it is we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Right? He had respect unto us. And if you look in Romans, the ninth chapter, he did not have respect unto Jacob for any other reason but according that his purpose and election might stand. Before either one of them had done good or bad, uh, he, he said, the elder shall serve the younger. Jacob have I love and Esau have I hated. I don't know why the Lord made us, covenant, uh, made us children of his covenant of grace and salvation, but he did. And the Lord looks on those people in a special regarding way. And, you know, there's, uh, to, to flip it around, and, and, and I hope I'm not speaking out of turn. I don't think I am. Tiffany has respect towards me. And she loves me. And do you know how that makes me feel when no matter where I'm at, uh, no matter what kind of day I've had, no matter what kind of problem I have, no matter what I'm feeling, there is one person in this world I know that would do anything within her power to help me, to see me happy, that looks on me in a way that nobody else in this world looks looks, looks at me like. That means something to me. Right? To know there's one person that looks on me with respect and favor in a way that nobody else can. That's how it ought to make us feel knowing the Lord looks on us like that. Now, it's hard to do that sometimes because, like Brother Tim says, you look in the mirror too long, what do you see? All the warts and pimples. I know what I am. 
I know what I am, but without the blood of Jesus, he would have no reason to look on me and respect me. But because of the blood of Jesus, he does. And that ought to pick us up on the days when we're drowning in the world and you need to step up to a little bit higher ground. The Lord of glory, the creator of the universe, looks on his covenant people with respect. I hope that's been profitable to you. Thank you for bearing with me. It's been a long week. I'll turn it back over to Brother Tim.